Welcome to episode 118 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined in the frosty north of my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hello slash bonjour, Courtney. You have to say it in both languages in Canada, you know. I guess, yes. It's not so much frosty up here at the moment. It's definitely wet. Okay. Um, there's been a bit of precipitation here in Toronto, although today, which is we're recording on Tuesday, it's been actually a really nice day, very windy. Um, as is the case when there's always a chance for thunderstorms and rain. Yeah. So the wind has picked up, but it's otherwise been a, a really nice day. There's, there was a power outage at the Players Hotel, not one in uh, on site, I guess, but it seems like there's always power outages in Canada. I don't get it because they have like the world's biggest hydroelectric thing in the world at Niagara Falls. What is Canada doing? This is my question. What are they doing? I don't know. I mean, last night I got home and I turned on the TV and I was watching the news and there was news of a power outage somewhere. <laughs> and it wasn't related to the Toronto thing. It was like some other Canadian city was had like a power outage. And I do wonder having, you know, done my summer thing where I drove uh, across Canada on the Trans-Canadian Highway, uh, whether or not something has to do with like, it's just really hard to like lay those power lines across vast expanses of land that do not otherwise have anything. Maybe. You know, there, there's reliability issues there, I, I would think. I don't know. But it, it is peculiar that it just it just does keep happening. It's, it seems like every time we're up here for the Rogers Cup, last year it was in Montreal when they had that, that, that big outage. Now it's it's a little bit in Toronto, though it has infected the tournament itself. But it's, it's a peculiar trend, it must it must be said. Yeah, so hopefully this show will be less peculiar. We're going to be joined by our guest, Anne Worcester, who is tournament director of the Connecticut Open in New Haven. It's the first time we're having a tournament director on the show to talk about all things that go into directing tournaments. And so there's a lot of different stuff touched on there. I spoke to her a little bit ago, and she has all sorts of insights and all the different balls you have to juggle in that job, because there is a lot. Just There's so much this. that people don't know, don't understand so that like the tournament director is yeah. has to handle and be concerned with. And it, it really is a full time gig. Oh, yeah. Like no, 365. Exactly. Exactly. So we, we'll talk to her. But first, let's just talk a little bit about the weeks we both just had. Um, Courtney, how is this is your first week as a WTA insider on site. How was Stanford? Stanford was great. Stanford is uh, my quote-unquote backyard tournament. I say quote-unquote because it is still an hour and 15 minutes away from my house. Yeah, I live a so mile, I live I mile was, from the D.C. tournament. You live like 40 miles from Stanford? Yeah, something like that, 40, 50 miles away. So it was um, an oddly exhausting week only because while I could have taken the option of staying at the hotel you know, in Stanford, um, I was like, you know what? I'm actually on the road for the next five weeks, um, Toronto and then Cincinnati and then three weeks in New York. So I was like, you know, even if it's just one week of sleeping in my own bed, that sounds like a pretty good good thing, which it was, but it just meant that I was driving for two and a half hours every day, which is about two and a half hours more than I drive ever on any given day. <laughs> so it was it was weirdly exhausting in that way. But uh, the tournament was good. I mean, it was obviously rocked a little bit early by Serena Williams's withdrawal, yeah. top seed there and defending champion. Um, that elevated Caroline Wozniacki to the number one seed, uh, which, you know, in... Most situations is great and, and fine. Unfortunately, she did come to Stanford uh, nursing a bit of a leg injury, and uh, you could see that that leg injury was still bothering her, yeah. even though she 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 got the the late start of Thursday, very late opening start, match, yeah. you know, very late start. So, you know, that was a little unfortunate. But 
at the end of the day, I think that, that we got, first of all, a fantastic match uh, between Angelique Kerber and Agnieszka Radwanska in the quarterfinals. To me, my favorite match of the year. I know people will bring up some of the other matches, you know, Serena and Vika at the majors, um, Muguruza Kerber at Wimbledon. But for me, just pure entertainment and quality from wire to wire, Radvanska Kerber, Stanford, phenomenal match. So that was really fun. And then at the end, uh, you know, you got a, a good final on paper with Kerber and Karolina Pliskova. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kerber, who is uh, goes on to win in uh, three really grueling sets. It wasn't the best quality of tennis, uh, best quality of match, but uh, definitely dramatic. But uh, I think they combined for something at like 17 or 18 breaks of serve um, in that match. Which is but, weird for a Pliskova match on a fast score. Yeah, quarter. she had just a terrible serving day. Yeah could not could not hold she would get into 30 love 30 15 positions 40 15 positions and she wouldn't be she wasn't able to close out so um you know disappointing on that end from Pushkova. but uh but for both of them kind of a nice little mini coronation moment you know i mean kerber oh and four in finals last year just one premier title to her name now she goes four and oh and all four premier finals like that's ridiculous Pushkova top 10 now and um, really played a, a gradually got better and better and better as the tournament went on. I think really impressed a lot of people in in, in her quality. So hey, it was it, at the end of the day, it was it was a good tournament. I thought for Stanford, and um, I thought it, it yielded enough storylines and was a good kickoff to the U.S. Open series. Now let's talk about Kerber briefly because Kerber has won, like you said, four titles, which I believe ties her with Serena for most on the year. Yep. Um, and Pliskova has the most finals in the, on the tour at five. Kerber like. What does this all mean? I mean, like, she's... It's a little bit similar. To, we're going to talk to Kani Shikori later, who won in Washington. Um, but she's proven... I don't think Kerber surprises anybody by being able to win Stanford. I don't think she... any and Stuttgart, I think, was the most impressive of the four tournaments she won this year, just because the field there was the toughest. But overall, like, is this a new Angelique Kerber? Is this the Kerber we've always kind of known, and it doesn't matter until she does it at a slam? Because I'm conflicted on that. Because, like, yeah, Serena's also won four titles. Um, they're all much bigger tournaments, three slams <laughs> and Miami. But Kerber, if you actually look at the opponents they played, Kerber, I saw someone do this stat, Kerber has beaten, like, pretty much the same number of top 10 and top 20 opponents en route to those titles as Serena has. But it's just been away from the spotlight. So, I don't know. Right. Does this all matter for Angelique Kerber, who's only who's won four titles and it's only, like, number six in the race because of not being able to do much at the big tournaments? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it does matter. And, and um, I think that if, if you were to ask me this maybe a week ago, I would have said, no, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, you know, but having been around her, her at Stanford, and maybe it's, I don't know, it's, it's you know, the, 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 it's not recency bias. It's a different bias, which is like bias of just kind of being around her for a week. Um, proximity you know, bias. To, yeah. yeah, exactly. Proximity bias. Thank you. I was like, what's the thing for distance? <laughs> um, but uh, proximity bias of just being around her and and, and um, watching, obviously, all of her matches, uh, talking to her afterwards, just um, seeing the way that she's carrying herself and going about her business. I think that it does matter. I think that this is a little bit of I'm not going to say an Angelique Kerber, you know, 3.0, because I don't think that it's that much of an upgrade but it's a, it's a minor firmware upgrade like <laughs> you know like it's it's got a few more bells and whistles um because i think that given her history in finals i mean she hasn't really had that great of a, a record in finals premier or not um you know she's made a quite a fair few of them and and really has come up second best more often than not in the past 
Um, and this isn't just because she was running up against, you know, number one, number two opposition. These, these were opponents that you would think Anjali Kerber could and should beat. And she would come out on the losing end. I get the sense that mentally and physically this is a different Kerber. I, I really do. I think that I was really impressed with her physicality over the course of the, the week in Stanford. And, and she's um, now working with Alex Stober, uh, formerly with Lena and Petra Kvitova. So I think that that's a great, you know, a great, uh, a great coaching hire for her. I just get the sense that this isn't Kerber just going through the motions and being a top 10 player. And I think that she's a bit more dangerous than that right now. But I do, I do echo what you said, Ben. I, I think that, you know, it's where the rubber meets the road. You got to do it at the majors, Yeah. you know, and, and in the last, you know, it has to be said that since Nuremberg, so since the start of the French Open, Anjali Kerber's only lost to one player. Garbina Muguruza mm. lost to her in the third round of the French and lost to her third round of Wimbledon. Both matches were three setters. I mean, otherwise she hasn't lost a match yeah. um, to anyone else. And it's not like Muguruza is, you know, a player that would be like, oh, that's a player that you should be beating. Should Kerber be beating her? Probably, but they're not a bad kind of, loss. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's not something where you're going to be like, oh, shame on you, Angelique Kerber, for losing that match. Like that was a slump. So I think it's a little bit different. So. It's it's really hard to say, but I I've been impressed by what she's been able to do, and and the sense that I get from Kerber is that she had a she had an opportunity, and we've seen this with Kerber. We know how negative she can get, and kind of like eye rolly and start sarcastic clapping and all that sort of stuff. And when she she could have kind of taken herself into a darker place uh, after her first three months of the season. Um, with the the string of losses and early losses and not doing much. I mean, she through March she was eight and nine in match play. So and she could have just taken herself into a dark place. And instead, she she says she's like I remain positive and most importantly for her, switching coaches, yeah. going back to Torben Belds, who's been with her the longest. She was like he believed in me, my team believed in me, and so I stayed positive. And then next thing I knew, I won Charleston and it's been crazy ever since, you know? Yeah. No, he definitely does seem to be like the timing of his arrival does seem to be when she turned things around in a He's big the way. Care Bear Whisperer. There you go. But it is an interesting <laughs> situation on the tour right now because I'm looking at the race rankings as they stand and we have, I want to say th- uh, four, well, Safarov, I'm not going to count this, but let's say three of the players currently in position to qualify for Singapore, who is Kerber, Suarez Navarro and Pliskova, who have combined to only reach, I think, one quarterfinal at a major this year, or maybe even zero. No, I think zero. Zero. Yeah, and yeah, so zero. and they they all three of them have been so great on the tour, and doing nothing at the slams, and not just like oh Wozniacki, you can't win a slam. Like they're not even coming close. They're losing early yeah. constantly, and I don't. I just it's an interesting thing to reconcile, um, because especially with Pliskova too. I mean, she's one in four in finals this year. Uh, so obviously her being in the thin number of finals with Serena, or more than Serena, has yeah. taken with a huge, big old sea salt grain. And uh, to be fair, yeah. that's what Pliskova said. No, I'm sure. She was yeah. like, she everybody's like, no one's made as many finals as you. And she's like, yeah, my finals are different from Serena's. <laughs> no, it's true. When her only title is Prague, you know, yeah. something else is going on. But yeah, overall, does it, does it just matter what they do at the big moment? So we saw Serena play her first match today in Canada, come back and win. And still seems like, and with, with her being a set and a breakdown to Panetta, uh, because Serena obviously is the player to beat at the, in New York, no matter what happens on the way there. Yeah. Is it still just a complete matter of 
these not getting too excited about Kerber's U.S. Open hopes or Pliskova's or Suarez Navarro's without majors. Well, I think that all three of those are very different cases. I think that Carla Suarez Navarro, you look at her results over the course of the last maybe two months. I think there are some indications that a letdown. Yeah. She's in the midst of a letdown. So I think that there's that. With Pliskova, she still remains a fairly inconsistent player. I mean, as much as she's had those five finals, she lost today in the first round. And that's always understandable. That turnaround is always rough. We also saw Anastasia Pavlichenkova pull out uh, with an arm injury. She lost to Lucic Baroni, by the way. Lucic Baroni. See, and look, top quality people lose to Lucic Baroni. (laughs) That is not... You know, I'm not shaking a stick at oh, that one. Oh, uh, speaking of Lucia Peroni, Halep was the other one I was going to throw in that group of people who haven't done well at slams. Halep is the one who only made that one quarter. That's the other name that was in my mind. This year. This but, year, I mean, Halep right. has shown her quality in no, the past. Right. So I think that, again, right. Halep is a different situation, you know? But I think that with Kerber, I think it's different because she, she obviously can get – we know that she can get to that position, right? I mean, she's a former U.S. Open semifinalist, uh, you know, has made slam quarterfinals things like that. She's playing better. She's undefeated against top 10 opposition this year. You know, the numbers are kind of shaping things up. And and I do, when you watch Kerber play, yes, I mean, obviously the big tests are always going to be Serena and Maria um, and Vika, probably, if Vika's playing well. But outside of that, I mean, Kerber has the ability to just get the job done. Yeah. And I think that she's in a very business-like mode right now and not in a bad way. And like, not business-like because she's going through the motions, but business-like, like, she is going out. She's taking care of business. She just won Stanford on Sunday. She flew to Toronto. She beat Masaki Doi love and one today. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad. I mean, that's kind of a statement, like, and I'm not re- I'm not done yet, you know? So I'm not saying she's going to win the U.S. Open. But, I mean, if Ange- of all of the players that you named, if Angelique Kerber doesn't make the second week at the Open, I will consider that to be a massive fail, unless she draws Garbine Muguruza again. Speaking of... <laughs> Carla, do you want to talk about what happened in her loss at Stanford? To risk? Oh, sure, we can. Okay, this because this got some attention. Um, got picked up by a bunch of you know blog type things. Uh, Allison Risk beat Carlos Suarez Navarro for a top ten win, and Allison Risk had another good win today in Toronto, beating Tamea Vichinsky. Um, and but the thing that caught attention was the coaching timeout that she had from her not full time coach, but her boyfriend Stephen Armitrage, who is a coach elsewhere in tennis just not her coach uh, basically uh allison was had been leading in the match uh, against carla and um was got gave back a game or felt like she played badly for a stretch and was getting down on herself and steven trying to snap her out of it uh told her to and i quote shut the fuck up sort of grabbed his microphone um to, to, to try to muffle it unsuccessfully and uh, sh- and yeah, and then she won the match, basically, in a nutshell. Anything you want to add to that? Because I know you thought that it was being underinterpreted, I guess, the way. It... Yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting because I, w- I obviously was there and I was watching it and I saw it and I kind of started laughing. And then um, I showed it to other reporters who were in the room and we all were like, that's great. And we were all kind of just cracking up because it was like, you know, an honest moment during a coaching timeout. And my perspective on it has always been like, I don't really... I'm completely agnostic when it comes to on-court coaching. I don't mind that it's there. I wouldn't cry if it wasn't there. But I think the WTA has made it clear that the reason why on-court coaching exists, at least, you know, as publicly stated, is not because 
they want to make better tennis players, you know, or like provide coaching to like increase the quality of the matches. Like the stated purpose of it is to add entertainment value Mm -hmm. to these matches, to allow the commentators to listen in and to, um, you know, allow fans to listen in and on on these moments. And I think that the on-court coaching gets a rap for, you know, a, a lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons is that like, that kind of underpins it all is that it's just not interesting. People, you know, the coaches are talking in a foreign language, so English speaking fans don't know what's going on, or, you know, it's just standard yeah, stuff. A lot of the time, it looks like the players paying no attention to it at all. Right. The players not paying, you know, it can be kind of flat. And I, honestly, last week in Stanford, we had three incredibly entertaining coaching timeouts, um, not just with Allison Risk, but Madison Keys was also involved with one. We've had, we had a few kind of like animated ones with Caroline Wozniacki as well and her father. So it was like, I was like, hey, this is exactly, you know, why this initiative is, is in place. And, and it worked. It was funny. The dust up regarding, I don't know. I mean, you obviously had like a far more strong reaction negatively to what you saw. And and Ben, and to be frank, Ben and I went back and forth, like fairly fervently on text message, kind of debating this um, after it happened. But but your response was very, very different from mine. I really didn't think it was that big of a deal. I, it was coaching. Yeah, no, I, I think that telling someone to shut the fuck up is sort of different than coaching. I, I just think that it's it's different. I, I, I've I obviously played plenty of sports and have plenty of coaches who swore all the time. But to do that to someone on TV and he knowing he was on TV as he did this, it's a thing like it's it's not that different for me because because of the origins of on-car coaching being a TV product. For me, it's not that different than like a commentator dropping an F-bomb during a match or something in terms of crossing a line um, and the way that it was directed. I mean, telling someone to shut the fuck up is inherently rude on some level. And I understand that maybe it, on some levels, what she needed to hear is what she needed to snap out of it. But I just thought that it was in this and And you said you're agnostic on encore coaching. I hate encore coaching. I've always hated it. I think that it makes, the, especially it being only on the WTA side, makes the women look like they don't know what they're doing. And so the, just the optics of it for, it looked like he was telling her that, you know, to stop talking because she didn't know what she was talking about in such a harsh manner. I reacted negatively to. Um, yeah, I, 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 mean, I mean, I understand that it's it worked. And I understand, you know, they're maybe they can talk to each other however they want. And she didn't seem, you know, appalled by what he said. Um, so they can do what they want. I just think that as the WTA being a very image conscious organization all the time. It just didn't, it was not a good look was more the thing for me already going to my bias of being super anti encore coaching to start with. You're entitled to your opinion. Yeah. I disagree vehemently. I mean, I, I think that honestly there is this weird, this whole argument about optics, like, Oh, it makes the women look weak. There's part of that. That's inherently sexist thinking that the women look weak. No, the way th- there's a sexism that's involved in projecting like, Oh, just because this coach said this to this player, oh, she's a weak person. It's like, that's weird. She's a professional athlete who's one of the top 50 doing her job. She didn't blanch at it. And when she was asked about it afterwards, she said, that's what I needed to hear. And that's precisely what Madison Keyes said as well when she was asked about it. Like, that was some tough love you got out there. And she was like, you know what? My coach was absolutely right. And it's what I needed to hear to snap out of it. And, uh, you you know, you talk to Caroline Wozniacki all the time about how, you know, her the discussions go with her and her father. And players aren't sitting there being like rescue me i'm so weak and i'm being yelled at they're like they're they're kind of gutting up and they're saying you know what they're right like you know that's why i call my coach down yeah. to tell me things you know and so this whole idea of like oh it makes them look weak i just i blanch at that inherently like if you i i just i don't know i think that it's incredibly problematic and a lot of people who use that as an argument and i'm not saying that you are 
but I'm saying that there are a lot of people who use that argument as saying, oh, it looks bad, like it's the optics, are basically using it to cover up their own sexism because they think that women are inherently weak. And they see that some situation where that happens and it just further under, underlines and underscores that they think that women are inherently weak. I don't, and it's like, I don't see that. I just don't. I just don't see that when a coach is yelling at a player that the woman is weak. No, it's not. This is not the, the thing that I it's see. It's not even about like what the context of the conversation is at all for me. It's about this 95% of the time it's a man coming running out of the stands to help this female player because she feels like she needs to help, help. to coach. Exactly. Job no, is to coach. No. And, and all, coach. Everybody has coaches. All of that is to say, and the men don't have it. It's it, the inequality, totally the lopsidedness of it is what is what's the problem. an issue because the men don't have it. But I, I, all I'm saying is that like this very easy, like I just see people make this argument all the time and it's like, it like just rolls off their back. Like, Oh, it just, it just the optics of it. And it's like, no, I think that sometimes people need to stop and take a little bit of a harder look at it. Because if you, automatically are doing are saying that because you you just think that women look weak anyway like that's a problem no that's not that's what, what i'm saying, saying. I, I don't think i didn't say that, that you're saying that i, know, I said but, that specifically i wasn't applying okay. to you i'm, well, I'm, I'm, saying I'm sort of defending broadly i'm defending the broader brush you're painting with though and that i think that women don't look weak when they're out at a slam and have no help you know i think then men and women are on the same plane it's just at this time i've been at indian wells in the stands and had you know uh in a women's match, I remember some like fans sitting behind me talking about like why the coach is coming out for them, and they've been watching men's matches all day and it didn't happen. It's just it's just the the lopsidedness of it is what makes it I think just a problem, and it, it's and it's just, I don't think that it adds much entertainment at all. And I think right and the WTA is happy with it. I mean, if they think it's a gimmick, they needed to increase viewership. Fine, I don't think it's increased viewership or really markedly entertainment on any sort of consistent basis. And now they're using it for product placement with SAP, which is fine too. But overall, I just think that it's not co- – I just have a hard time engaging with it as coaching, knowing that its origins were as entertainment. Maybe that's unfair to it. Maybe it has evolved into legitimate you know, coaching medium, but I just still see it as this weird Bush League gimmick that hasn't validated itself, and the men still aren't doing so. In Washington, uh, there was – men's and women's tennis being played. Kenny Shikori won on the men's side, beating uh, Marin Chilich in the semis in a rematch of the U.S. Open final and John Isner in the final in three sets. Uh, both of those matches in three sets. And Kay won another 500 title. Um, and on the women's side, maybe more notably, Sloane Stevens finally made a final and won that final convincingly. Uh, won the semi over Stoser and the final over Pavly Chenkova, both in straight sets. And now she is no longer you know, burdened with that label of being the best player not to win a title or best to win a final, um, which I think had dogged her probably more than deserved to. I mean, she obviously, she was nearly a top 10 player. She was, there no one, I don't think anybody thought she lacked the skill to win a title, but there was an obvious sense of relief from her. Courtney, do you think this, this, it seems like a long time coming for Sloan with how solid a year she's had since March, really. Do you think this, this getting this monkey off her back, so to speak, changes anything for her or will help her going forward? Yeah, I mean, anytime you hit a career milestone, it's helpful, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, people can downplay all you want, but it's like you have now done something that you had not previously done. So it's kind of like a, an achievement unlocked sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's great. I think she, it's no surprise whatsoever that she won DC. And as you said, she's been playing remarkably well. And 
I think anybody who's actually sat down and paid attention to how she's played, you know, on the grass court season at Wimbledon, on the clay as well. I mean, things have just been really clicking with Nick Saviano in her corner. He just has this way of motivating her and she's playing the type of tennis that we've always kind of hoped and wanted Sloane Stevens to play which is that which is like not always dropping into a defensive shell yeah. and not just pushing but actually hitting the ball and taking the cracks and and really asserting herself on court and so that's just really great to see I'm really happy for her and I think that yeah I think that uh, to the extent that it was a monkey on her back, I don't think it was anything that massive, but it was a little cloud, you know, and now she doesn't have to deal with it anymore. Yeah, and I think that Sloan, obviously, you know, being sensitive to what people say on social media, as we know about her and stuff, did take it harder than other players might have. Because, I mean, she is, like we've talked about before, um, a, a polarizing player on tour for whatever reason. So it was a knock against her that's no longer there. And she didn't have the hardest road to this final by any means. I mean, her first three rounds were really easy. She played Magda Lynette and then got a walkover and then played Luisa Chirico. But afterwards, she's been sharp. And she's definitely, I think, on the short list of players who can do big things at, at these tournaments. You see her at the French Open. She was playing great. She remember she beat Venus so routinely at the French Open. The first round, I think people forget that match. And uh, then she lost to Safarova at Wimbledon, which is totally respectable loss for her there. So she's definitely somebody who I think is one to watch for making another good run. If she's in the if she doesn't get Serena early, I don't think there's anybody else in New York she can't beat. I mean when she's her I think her upside is that big. Azarenka? I think she can beat Azarenka if 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 she's at her best. Maybe she hasn't before. Maybe that you you're right but you might be right about that, but I think I'm just saying the way that their matches have gone before when Vika's no, playing true. well have not been pretty for Sloan. That's, that's very true. So yeah, but maybe that's right. But this could be this is an opportunity, you know. I mean, like if she's playing better, if 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 you know, to all of our, if if we're saying that she's playing like you know the some of the best tennis of her life, which I think that she is right now actually. Yeah. Um. Then yeah, you have to give her obviously that chance. I just wanted to make sure that she wasn't Victoria Azarenka wasn't glossed over mm-hmm. as being someone who's given Sloane Stevens problems in the past. No, totally for sure. That's absolutely right. Um. So other other thoughts from Canada moving forward? Any any impressions that you have so far there? It's your first time at that tournament. How's everything looking for you yeah. in Toronto? No, it's, yeah, first time here. Um, have only, you know, I mean, yesterday was kind of being in a, a bit of a, um, you know, a bunker because it was, it was all access hours and it was indoors. And so I couldn't see outside. So it wasn't until you know, the rain delay was into its like fifth hour that I was like, oh, it's raining. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was a little bit uh, out of the loop on that end. But um, but yeah, no, so far so good. It's a it's a nice tournament. The court's really nice. Um, you know, the fans are excited to, to be here. But it's I think once, you know, things dry out a little bit and, you know, the weather gets a little bit nicer and maybe, you know, towards semifinal and final weekend, I think we'll probably see a little bit more of kind of what makes the Rogers Cup in Toronto, uh, the Rogers Cup in Toronto. But but as of right now, just early days, um, it's just been really busy. A lot of me running around. So I've seen more of like, you know, conference rooms and yeah. uh, windowless rooms than I have seen uh, much of like, you know, tennis balls being hit. So yeah. hard to get a sense as of the moment. No, that's a good point. I mean, people think that a lot that our jobs are going around the world, just watching tennis and sitting outside and getting nice tans or whatever, but it's, we're pretty indoor kids even when we're at tennis tournaments. <laughs> I'm a super indoor kid anyway, which is actually why I'm a good tennis writer because <laughs> I don't mind not having to go outside, but yeah, no, cause I'll, I'll access our in Toronto is like the top eight seeds. So it's that's a lot of interviews and a lot of like roundtables and one-on-ones to juggle and uh, stuff like that. But uh, but so far so good.
we got one question I want to get to before we get to our guests. I know we have an answer to this question for now. This was a question. We've gotten a bunch of questions. The way we got so many questions about Laura Robson when she was out in a, in a distant but clear second has been Jamie Hampton. And Jamie, and we got a question from Kunal uh, Kashir Sagar, who asks us, where in the world is Jamie Hampton? It's been so long. I think she would have come back by now. I really like her. Courtney, do you have some Jamie Hampton news for us? Or Julie Hamilton, <laughs> as she's known? I do have some Julie Hamilton news. Before I hopped onto this call to record this podcast, I actually was hopping off of the phone with, with Jamie Hampton, was able to, to catch up with her a little bit, and I'll, I'll um, post the full kind of Jamie Hampton update um, at the, on the WTA website when it goes up. But, um, but just as a teaser and just to satisfy, because Ben's right. I mean, and I was actually, I did tell Jamie this um, when we were on the phone, because I think that on some, on some level, she's been reticent to, to talk about it just because uh, and, and give a status update because she kind of on some level she's kind of like nobody cares yeah like no, nobody can Laura Robson was the same way actually weirdly and Laura being a bigger sort of star than Jamie I would think I would have some sense of it but right. I told Laura about when I saw her at Wimbledon about like how we used to get literally like three questions a week for NCR about Laura Robson and she hadn't played in you know over a year um, yeah and, and they were yeah. taking I think they can when they're away from the tour you can be really away and think you you forgotten but yeah not the case no not the case so uh but she was she was very touched when i told her that like kind of the same story like we get questions about you a lot people want to know what's up with you so you know that's why i'm talking to you anyway so jamie hampton where in the world is jamie hampton jamie hampton is in boca raton uh florida she's rehabbing continuing to rehab after undergoing now her sixth surgery um uh this time a second surgery on her right hip which continues to to give her problems she's also had surgery on the the right and left achilles elbows hips all all this sort of stuff and um and yeah i mean she's she's trying to stay positive she's trying to stick with it um she's still all about the tennis like that's what she wants to do she's joked that uh, she said that she's not taking any classes and her mom's trying to push her (laughs) to take classes uh you know to do something with her free time but Jamie's like no I'm still all about the tennis and when I asked her you know is that kind of a either a conscious or subconscious decision just because you don't want to you want to keep both feet in this like you don't want to do kind of what happened with Mallory Burdett right um for those people who didn't who read the piece that I wrote for WTA Insider on Burdett like she got injured kind of went back to Stanford. And then when she went back to Stanford while she was doing rehab, she kind of rediscovered her passion for school, for being with friends and all that. And her passion for tennis waned. And, you know, I think that with Jamie, she, she basically said, she's like, I want to keep my, my, my feet in tennis. I'm not willing to give up on it quite yet. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of a bit of a, a nutshell summary of what's up with Jamie, but, um, but yeah, later this week, you'll be able to read, um, the full details with quotes and all that. Um, at WTAtennis.com. And we will be sure to tweet that out from the NCR account, too, if you guys can see it. Because we know she's been... Even though we never had her on the show, she's always been a fan favorite. I think she's probably like... That's the, right, we never had her on she, the show, huh? She's like probably the most NCR-ish guest we never had. Yeah. Not, not, not saying we couldn't in the future, but we haven't had her yet. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yes, there's Jamie. And now let's transition to another guest we haven't had before, who's Ann Worcester, who is the tournament director of the Connecticut Open, who I talked to recently about tournament directing stuff, wide-ranging conversation, as we said before, and we think that you'll learn some stuff from this, and you just see how much sort of hustle goes into doing this, especially, I think, at a tournament like New Haven, which is in a tough, uh, an arguably tough spot of the calendar, right before the U.S. Open, but has advantages, too. Um, 
being women's only. Yeah, there's a lot, lot going on there. So here is Anne, and we hope you enjoy it. Uh, very excited to be joined by Anne Worcester, and it's the tournament director of the Connecticut Open, which is happening week before the U.S. Open in New Haven, Connecticut. Hi, Anne. Hello, Ben. Thanks for being with us. I, I just sort of want to get a sense of, for people, what it's like having a tournament director, being a tournament director, I guess. We haven't had one on the show before. Um, I guess coming up into New Haven, what are these weeks leading up to the tournament like for you, and then what is the week itself like as well? Just sort of general day-in-the-life sort of thing, I guess. Well, um, being a tournament director is, um, I, you know, I think it's one of the best jobs in the whole wide world. I, I hope all my fellow tournament directors would agree with that. It's um, it's because it's a little bit of everything. It's marketing, it's sponsorship, it's volunteers, it's, um, you know, competition, it's operations. You really have to um, be well-informed and add value to all the different areas of, of the tournament. So there's lots of diversity. Um, and then, of course, you have to surround yourself by really smart people who make you look good. And yeah. I'm very lucky to have fantastic um department heads and and there's a great team that runs the connecticut open here um and that we have a team of 10 people full-time who work 51 weeks of the year to put on the one week show so we always find it funny when somebody says oh so what do you do outside the summer yeah um so um you know and and in i spend most of my time selling sponsorship um, in addition to recruiting players, and I'm selling sponsorships 36 months out at all times. So we're not even just focusing on the current year. We're always looking ahead to the next um, two or three tournaments. Um, so, you know, a, a WTA event or an ATP event is a large-scale international sporting event with budget in the three, four, five, or even more million dollars. And... Um, you know, the, the, it, it really takes a year-round effort to be able to sell tickets and sponsorship um, to be able to, to pay the bills and put on the show. So it's very much a year-round um, challenge. And, but definitely the, the three weeks, three, I'd say the two months leading in are the most exciting, like, and busy and fast-paced. Um, you know, I, I probably have... I don't know, every hour at least 50 emails are pouring into my inbox that I can barely keep up with. Um, so, you know, at this time, we're three weeks out of the Connecticut Open as of this coming Friday, and so I'm receiving a lot of wild card requests from players. Um, our operations department is already putting up tents for sponsor hospitality, for the food court, Um you know, the landscaping is beginning to arrive. Um, all of our marketing is in full gear. So um, that's advertising on billboards and print and on radio, on television, digital advertising. Um, social media takes up quite a bit of time and effort to keep up with. We're constantly sharing, posting, tweeting. Um, the players themselves are very active on social media, so mm -hmm. we do a lot with them. We announced um, a, a player field, our full field, minus our wild cards a couple of weeks ago. Um, we have 
two of the top five players in the world and a trio of rising American stars. And the news generates quite a bit of, um, you know, favorable and top-notch placement, not just locally but regionally. And the players themselves um, um, helped us by pushing it out on social media. So Simona Halep and Petra Kvitova and Jeannie Bouchard and that produced just a massive reach on so social um, media platforms. Right. I think their, I think their posts on Facebook and Twitter generated more than five million followers globally in the 24 hours following the player field release. Pretty so, good. So, um, yeah, and um, so that's a lot of fun, and that takes up a lot of our time and a lot of our energy. And then we also have a Legends event here. So, in addition to being a WTA Premier event. We um, have a Legends event with um, Andy Roddick and um, is playing James Blake, who is our hometown favorite, um, here um, on quarterfinal Thursday, uh, August 27th. And then on semifinal Friday night, um, WTA semifinals will be followed by John McEnroe playing Jim Courier. And so we did a media phoner with John McEnroe last week, which just imp- and he told the media that his days of playing are numbered, and right. this was likely you probably saw that. Yeah. And so this was probably his you know last appearance in Connecticut. We had no idea. Within like three hours, that there was an AP reporter on the um, on the phone or on the uh, media conference call, and within three hours, more than more than 160 outlets across the country, including the New York Times, ESPN, ABC News, they all published the AP, AP story about John McEnroe playing at the Connecticut Open. So um, That's a, good, night. That's a know, good day for you. That was a good day. That was a good day. And we just had Madison Keys do her um, conference call with the media a couple hours ago. So now we're in the process of socializing it. So you'll, you know, you know it'll be... You know, Q and A, and you know, we we do we do everything we can to put things out on social media. So, so you touched on a lot of things that there were good. I'm going to go back to a few of them. Uh, just you talked about what I let's talk. I know people are interested in wild cards a lot, and wild cards generate a lot of discussion at pretty much every tournament in terms of who they go to, who they sh- people second guess them a lot, or wonder how certain players get wild cards. For you, yep. you're in a you're in a, a I think a pretty powerful week of the year right before it's for wild cards anyway, because you see players who might come to you later than usual, I guess saying yeah. if, Oh, I happen to lose let's say really early in Canada and Tennessee and I want more matches. So, right. so exactly. you guys, you guys are, you guys probably have to wait a little longer than, or can wait. You can wait longer than other people. We do. I, so how, how does the whole wild card process happen? Uh, we're talking so, now before the Washington week. So I guess how do you have any in mind already? Or are you going to, yeah, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. We do um, many times wait until the very last minute because we're in this um, crazy week right before the U.S. Open. I mean, basically, um, the week before the U.S. Open, somebody like a Serena or a Maria Sharapova probably is is not going to play because they have so many corporate endorsements on Madison Avenue and in New York City that they practice and they fulfill those obligations. Um, is, that, is that something you've seen changed? How and I guess yes. during the time because I guess. You've, yeah. been, you've been director for how many years now? 18 years. 18 years, yeah. So I remember back in, I remember when Venus was sort of at her, you know, at her best 15 years ago and was making the U.S. Open final every year. She was playing New Haven 
all the exactly. time right before Four that. Four times in a row. Davenport too, and yeah. yeah, and Venus hasn't made the U.S. Open final since she stopped playing New Haven, so maybe she right. should come back. Right. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess how have you seen the attitude towards this week before the a slam change? I think we've seen that affect other tournaments, like you know Sydney, for example, has I think had a tough time getting players sometimes of the same yeah, caliber they it's used really to. It's really a double-edged sword. Um, we're, uh, on, in the women's game, we're lucky because um, many of the top women prefer to play into form as opposed to practicing. So they really like um, they like to. They, you know, when I recruit players, um, my whole sort of pitch is um, playing the Connecticut Open is a great way to prepare for the U.S. Open because it's the same surface, the same climate, the same time zone, the same balls, and it's a 90-minute trip down to your U.S. Open hotel. And if you get to the finals, you'll be in New York for Saturday night dinner, and you know, and you have Sunday off. So um, that's really worked over the years, but I've definitely seen more top players have more um, of their sponsorship and their endorsement obligations the week before. That's a real new trend, a more recent trend. Right. Um, so basically we go out and, and recruit players that are willing to play the week before, and they know that in advance. So, you know, world number three, Simona Halep, world number four, Petra Kvitova, um, uh, top ten player, you know, uh, Ekaterina Makarova, um, usually, Caroline Wozniacki enters early. She's played here the last six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we announce those players, and um, we, we, we have a 30 draw. So we've already, we've already announced 20 direct-in acceptances, and the cutoff is something like 38 in the world. I mean, it's crazy competitive, yeah. really close matches. It's one of the highest we, cuts of the year, I think. Yes, in New yes. Houston. So anybody that cares about the competition on the court will really enjoy seeing, you know, it's like the second week of a Grand Slam from the first round on. Last year we had, like, Andrea Petkovic playing Dominika Sibilkova on Monday night. It was crazy. Two top 20 players. Yeah. Um, so it's very competitive. Our qualifying is so strong you know, many, many top 100 players. It's like an international event on the WTA tour. Um, so um, there, we have a 48 qualifying. We have a very large qualifying because it's the week before the U.S. Open and players need jobs. So six players will advance from the qualifying into the main draw, and the remaining four spots are wild cards. And so I keep in close touch with every top mm-hmm. 20 player and their agent and their mother and their father and any other key influencer in their life um, throughout the Emirates Airline U.S. Open Series. And I track their matches, not only, you know, how far do they go in each tournament, but how many sets did they, did they play? Because these players need matches going into the U.S. Open. And for those that don't get it, that lose earlier than they'd like, or maybe somebody's coming back from injury and might need some more matches than they knew they did, I will uh, approach them and say, are you interested in a wild card? And every year we've had top players, really great surprise wild cards. So it's kind of fun. It's a real chase. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess let's, I wanted to ask more about that, just sort of the, how the actual player recruitment chase works. So you, are you traveling to tournaments to talk to these players in person, or are you just – texting yeah. and calling i mean are, are you I, 
Oh, all, all the I above, don't. I guess, are you you're just finding yeah. whoever's in a player lounge and I don't know, Indian Wells, you show up yeah. and you talk to Bell New Haven. Uh, I mean, how does it, how does it work? Yeah, well, I have actually. two teenagers at home, okay. so it's not easy for me to travel, but, um, I keep in touch with the players all year long. I mean, the, one of the benefits of being in this tennis world for 30 years is that you have relationships. And um, I, when you know, when I go on a recruiting, I, 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 when I go on a recruiting trip, you know, once or twice a year, I don't spend time on watching stadium court matches. I spend time on the outer courts and trying to see like who are the next, who are the players coming up um, in the pipeline and up in the rankings. And I make it a point to introduce myself and to say hello and um, talk about the, um, the the Connecticut Open. Um, last year, I met uh, Jeannie Bouchard and her mother and a physio or a coach, and I talked about the Connecticut Open very objectively because I didn't know anything about it. And at the end, the mom said, that's the best presentation we've ever had. I, I, you know, I need you know the coach to hear that later on. So... Um, you know, we, the, I think the secret to our success, Ben, here, and Lindsay Davenport coined this phrase, is that playing in New Haven is the calm before the storm of New York. Right. Um, the players stay downtown. They eat the delicious complimentary meals in the best restaurants of New Haven, just steps out of their, you know, steps away from their hotel. There's great shopping downtown. There's great museums downtown. And it's a five-minute ride, car ride, to the Connecticut Tennis Center at Yale. So everything is easy. Everything is easy. And we don't ask any more of them than we need. We try and make everything fun and easy because we know that they're anxious the week before. Yeah. So, um, you know, we mu- we've had an average of five of the top ten players in the world, usually more than half of the world's top 25 so we have a really terrific player services staff who really rolls out the welcome mat. And, you know, we just try and make players feel welcome in the week before the fourth and final Grand Slam of the year when they know they're a little nervous and anxious. You mentioned in your opening, uh, uh, you know, thoughts on being a tournament director, competition, that's part of the job you liked. I guess who do you see as the competition for the Connecticut Open? Well, when I say competition, I mean I mean something completely different. I mean, we're completely focused here in making the Connecticut Open more than just a tennis tournament, and we it's a week-long festival of fun and exciting activities with food trucks and live music and theme nights and all kinds of fun things. But the competition is what happens on the court. So the okay. competition gotcha. is we have here – a WTA singles event, a WTA qualifying singles event, a WTA doubles event. We have the men's legends event, which is an exhibition. And we also have the U.S. Open National Playoff Championships, men's and women's singles, men's and women's doubles, and mixed doubles. And all of those players come from all over the country, and they're vying for U.S. Open wildcards the week before the U.S. Open. Right. So we have something like seven events going on at the same time. That's the competition. And, you know, there's um, we have scheduling meetings every day. You know, who's playing on stadium court? Who's playing the television matches? 
and you have to think about what's fair to the player in terms of overnight recovery. You have to think about what the fans want to see. You have to think about what television wants to see. Right. You have to think about what your sponsors. So when you're the tournament director, you have to represent everybody's interest at the table. Like, for example, today I received two scheduling requests from players who don't want to play Monday night. They want to play their first round Sunday or Monday morning. So, you know, players, you know, everybody, you know, this one has an ankle and that one has a Nike appearance in New York. And it's just a giant jigsaw puzzle to put the schedule together. But that's all part of the competition. And the WTA sends something like 30 people here into all tournaments and the bigger tournaments probably even more. But so there's um, a supervisor, there's player relations, there's communication staff, there's athletic trainers, there's massage therapists. Sometimes there's drug testing people. I mean, it's it's um, it, it and all of that goes into putting on, you know, the show and you know, which is women's professional tennis as the preeminent sport for women in the whole wide world. Yeah. So. We sometimes forget with all the fashion shows and wine tastings and kids' day and military appreciation nights and power girl nights, and we sometimes forget that we're, you know, a women's professional tennis tournament, but that is the competition. That's the entertainment um, on the court is what we call the competition. Okay. But I guess in terms of, I guess, looking outward, are there other tournaments that you look at to sort of see how you're – comparing i mean do you look at obviously you keep tabs on what everyone else around the tour is doing but do you look mm-hmm. at other tennis tournaments do you look at other sporting events in connecticut do you look at the u.s yeah. open yeah. i mean how do you sort of measure um, measure well, what you're doing you know if you know in terms of sharing best practices um the u.s open series tournaments are very closely knit and we do share a lot of best practices we have partner meetings in the winter time we share information on sponsorship on marketing the USTA really keeps us all very closely knit. Um, so we all, and I don't have any other women's event in my week. So I'm, we, Connecticut Open doesn't compete with any other tournament for players. Right. That'll change next year, though, I think. Right. That'll change next year. And But um, if you, if, but I do also look outside tennis to other sports for best practices all the time, especially creative ideas on sponsor activation, um, emerging categories in the sponsor world, and I definitely have been looking most recently at the PGA Tour because PGA Tour events like the Travelers Championship here in Connecticut, like the John Deere Classic in the Quad Cities, are nonprofit events, nonprofit organizations. And we, since the state of Connecticut bought the tournament in 2013, we have become a 501c3 charitable organization. Yeah. But we're not a normal charity because we're a charity doing good for other charities. So so how how did, I guess, you can talk people through how that takeover buying by the government took place. Because I know it was pretty unique in tennis. I think it's one of the first times it very, happened very, yeah, in, in very the U.S. Unique. at least. And uh, I guess sort of explain how that came about and how it's changed the the, the playing field for you guys. Because the tournament... Um, does has always done so much to give back to, um, to to benefit the community in terms of economic impact um, and to to maximize charitable giving. Um, the, the the when the tournament was likely to be sold out of state, the state of Connecticut Mayor um, Daniel Malloy and his team stepped in and said, "We're not letting this go. It's too important." 
for economic impact, for marketing of the state around the world, which helps us to bring business here. It's too important in terms of community outreach programs. So they stepped in, and in the swiftest form that I think anyone has ever seen government work, um, match the offer, and um, we were able to keep the tournament here in Connecticut. And that's when we became a 501c3 organization. And since then, uh, you know, the tournament has just done even more to benefit the community and to, um, to, to focus on charitable giving, especially in the areas of women's causes and youth causes and military causes because our title sponsor, our lead sponsor is United Technology. Okay. Now, you mentioned women's causes. Obviously, New Haven used to be a combined tournament. It's been yeah. women only for the last few years. How does, yeah. that, how does that change your job in terms of just, just marketing, selling a women's sport? Um, how, how does that uh, make it a different landscape than when you had both men and women uh, both there all, yeah. all the time? Well, um, the demographic for tennis is very curious. It is as close to 50-50 appealing to men and women as probably any sport, even a, a women's-only tournament. So, um, But when we had to give up the men's tournament in 2010, um, we heard loud and clear from our fans that they understood that it was too expensive to do both in this crazy week before the U.S. Open, but they really wanted to, you know, see the men again. And I just couldn't, you know, we weren't going to um, revisit that financial model because it didn't work. So when James Blake retired from the ATP tour, that was our opportunity to go and talk to him as our local hometown favorite to create, to start a a men's um, legends event. So, uh, last year, um, James and I partnered, and he played one night against Andy Roddick and the other night against Jim Courier. It was very well-received by our fans and the media. The players enjoyed it. So this year, we expanded it and added John McEnroe, and um, those sessions are selling very, very well. But in just in term, I guess in terms of you can look back to when you were a combined event, uh, in terms of having a women's event, female athletes obviously – Tennis is the biggest women's sport in the world by yeah. some distance, but still women's sport overall in the U.S. and everywhere is sort of still a challenger to men's sport in some way. or still not on the same established right. field. Right, there's more equality in tennis than other sports. Right. So I'm, I'm just wondering now being a women's only event, if that yeah. approaches, if you if you do things through a different lens. lens. Yeah, or, I mean, you talk about, you know, the girl power stuff or, you know, women's yeah. causes. If you tr- how much you try to make the tournament have a really, uh, I don't want to say feminine, but, you know, women-centric feel yep. to it? That's a good question. Um, we never, ever take – there when we became a women's-only event, there were women's groups who wanted us to call it the Connecticut Women's Open and only have women in our advertising, and everything was pink. And I – respectfully had to disagree with that strategy, that marketing strategy, because 50% of our audience or 45% of our audience is still male, whether it's the on-site audience or the spectators. So we continue to, um, you know, we, or we, we, you know, we want to leverage the excitement of world-class women's tennis to benefit the community and maximize support for important causes. But 
you know, everything we do here, you know, incorporating a full schedule of fun activities to broaden the appeal of the tournament is is geared to men and women. And against that backdrop, you know, we do pay a lot of attention to women's causes. So, you know, on the Monday of our tournament, Aetna hosts a symposium for female high school student athletes about healthy, active lifestyle. And we have a fabulous ESPN moderator and, you know, expert panelists. And, you know, this year we're honoring the UConn Women's Huskies 2015 NCAA National Championships team. Um, you know, and we're introducing a Power Girl Night, which is all about mentoring. And we have a brand new Court Girl and Cocktails lunch that is almost practically sold out. And we continue to fundraise for Smilo Cancer Hospital's Breast Center through the Closer to Free um, Player Challenge together with our players. So there's a long list of things we do for women, but there's also a long list of things we do for boys and girls, for youth, inner-city youth programs. And there's a long list of things we do for all kinds of other nonprofits, religious groups, senior groups, youth groups, sports groups, arts groups, um, because that is the whole essence of the tournament. It's, we are a WTA event, you know, first and foremost, and we are all about leveraging the excitement of world-class women's tennis to give back to community. Um, you know, a lot of our military appreciation efforts are, you know, very focused on on men, just because there's simply more men in the in the military. Sure. But we're trying to find, you know, even more women. Um, so it's a balance. Um, but we are, I would, I would say, we are doing more to focus on women's causes than we did when we were a combined event. That makes sense. I guess, in terms of talking about all the different things you're doing on site, you also mentioned, you know difference between on-site attendant people in attendance and people watching on TV and you guys with the social media, you know, talking about AP stories going around the country and how that's useful to you. I mean, how much of your focus in general promoting the tournament is about really getting people in the Metro New Haven area or Connecticut as a whole, or I guess even into, into New York a little bit to try to get people who might be most likely to come to the tournament and how much is raising awareness nationwide and internationally for people who might be, less likely to actually become ticket buyers? Um, 50% of our audience comes from New Haven County. Okay. 25% from closer to New York, Fairfield County, and then the rest is sort of spread out throughout the state and out of state. But we, especially now that we're owned by the state of Connecticut, and especially um, – because we're reaching out to so many nonprofit organizations to help them fundraise, um, we're we're our marketing is is much more statewide, um, all the way down to Rye, New York. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. um, you know the the Newport Men's event, which is the beginning of the summer, is the only other professional ATP or WTA event in all of New England. So we see that as a real opportunity. Um, and then because we're the week before the U.S. Open, sometimes some people come come here just for the U.S. Open, and they'll come a few days early to enjoy the Connecticut Open just because it's a little bit more up close and personal and intimate. Yeah, that would make that makes sense. And I guess just in terms of social media, too, you guys did like that great video last year with Nick McCarville doing like the dictionary terms yes. and stuff like that. Yes. So th- that seems to have like a much sort of trying to, you know, much wider internet wide appeal. Amaze- it was called Amazeballs. Amazeballs. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah. 
fact, yeah. how much do those No, we have a very creative PR and social media team, and Matt Van Tynan and Nick and Steven, they're all terrific, and um, they even got three tennis players to pour ice on my head and somehow wrapped that up in a video and pushed it out on YouTube, and I think there's more than 150,000 views on that, too, because, again, the players who are active on social media tweeted and posted and pushed it out on their own channels. How much? I guess how much do you see social media as affecting box office, and does that matter? It doesn't sell tickets. It just creates not only awareness, but it cre- helps to create a connection. Mm-hmm. Um, if you keep in touch with your followers and your friends year-round and create a rapport and a relationship, then when you go out with a ticket promotion, I think you're more likely to convert someone to a sale. Um, but I would never – it's a very important piece of a much bigger pie. You need paid advertising, your earned media, which is your, 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 your public relations, and your social. And then, of course, what you own, you know, your website, your posters, your ticket brochures. So it used to be everybody thought about PEO, paid, earned, owned, and now it's PESO, paid, earned, social, and owned, because social media is a huge part of the mix, but it could never, ever be the only part of the mix. If, if you – I'll sort of wrap up with this, just a general question. If, if you knew someone who was going to become a tournament director for the first time at a, at a tour event, ATP or WTA, what would be the one key piece of advice you'd give them on how to survive and thrive in this with all the different stuff you have to juggle in this job, if there uh, is one? I would – I would – uh, I just had this conversation with a brand-new tournament director, come to think of it, and I recommended that um, she um, seek out the the help and the expertise of as many other tournament directors as possible and to listen and um, just try and, and learn as much as she could and to try and visit other tournaments. Um, as well as other events, because there's so much we can all learn so much from other sports and other entertainment events as well. So it's a, it's a lot of listening and it's a lot of respecting those who have been around for a long time and have been around the block. And you know, then it's of course nice to have new and fresh blood in the mix. Sure, sounds good. Thank you very much, Anne. This was awesome. Uh, uh, we always let okay. guests pick like a outro song. Does does do you or does the Connecticut Open have like a theme song or oh anything gosh. like that? Wow. Um, I, I don't stop believing, I think would have okay. to characterize all the ups and downs of this tournament and, you know, you know, adding the men and losing the men and almost losing our sanction and sort of now getting back on um, very solid ground thanks to the state of Connecticut and Yale University and, Yale New Haven Hospital and our other key stakeholders, um, I'd say it's been a journey. (laughs) And so I guess Journey Song, Don't Stop Believing, which, you know, is also on my playlist and I listened to it this morning when I worked out. Thanks, Ben. My pleasure. Bye. Thank you guys for listening to the show once again. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by following us on Twitter 
at NCR underscore tennis. And you can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. If you have a question for an upcoming show, you can email it to us. No challenges remaining at gmail.com and send us any other comments, queries, complaints, etc. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so on any RSS thing or podcast app and on iTunes. And if you're on iTunes, you can leave us a review. We like those very much. Uh, Courtney, do you want to go first or second in our every week mine's, or weekly rant rave thing? Yeah, mine's really short, so mine's, why don't you go first? Mine's short, too, but we can be short. That's fine. Plenty of show already. I'm just going to be in quick praise of this iPhone app game I really like. It's called Letterpress. It's, um, they're basically 25 tiles that have letters on them, and you and some online player, you can pick a friend, too, if you want, if you know their name, um, play and try to capture, like, the majority of the board making words using the tiles. They're non-contiguous tiles. And I don't know, I just think it's really simple and nice, minimal design and pretty and all sorts of stuff. And it can get, it's, even though I'm not knowing these people I'm playing, it can get, like, weirdly, like, territorial and confrontational and cut, <laughs> cutthroat for a basically souped-up boggle game. So I'm a big fan of it and highly recommend it. If you want to play me on there, I'm Ben Rothenberg. Challenge me. I would love to play you guys. Letterpress. Yay. That's about it. Oh, and I have one quick tennis rant. We don't usually do tennis rants. So that was my rave. My quick rant, being at a tournament again, I really, really think that the ushers or the tournaments, whatever, need to let people in after the first game of a set. I don't. I think yep. waiting for three games at the beginning of a set is way too long. So that's usually like 15 minutes. And it's just people who try to go to the bathroom between sets and miss it by like 10 seconds and have to wait. When the whole point of being a ticket-paying customer is that you're there to see tennis. And if you're trapped outside, I just think it's really disrespectful. I think it's also bad when players stand there and glare at fans who are like slow getting to their seats. Like they're causing some grievous, you know, insult by wanting to see them play tennis. I just, I think the whole thing needs to be more fan-oriented. Maybe not moving around constantly, but just that one small change. Open the gates after one game. Because the players usually, especially in the second set and beyond, do stop and towel and get water and stuff and just... Let, That's let, true. Let my people they get a break. How, yeah. come, how come the fans can't? And, yeah. and if they need to stand there for 30 seconds away for people to get their seats, big deal. Stand there for 30 seconds and do it. Anyway, yeah. that's my that's my tennis rant. We don't have any tennis rants on there, so that's, that's one. Fair enough. Cool. Courtney, what you got? Uh, my rave is not tennis related at all, but um, I was reading and finally got around to, even though I bought it a long time ago, but I finally got around this goes towards my rave about graphic novels a few weeks ago, um, but a rave for a book called Tomboy by an illustrator named Liz Prince. I love Liz Prince. She's hilarious. Her books, she has a, a bunch of different books that she's put out before um, that are just really wonderful. I think one of them is called like, will you still love me if I wet the bed or something like that? Um, <laughs> uh, just about that are kind of autobiographical and um, memoir kind of like, but Tomboy is kind of her big book that she put out, I, belong, I want to say either last year or the year before. Um, and it's just basically about her like growing up as a tomboy and what that meant and um, kind of what it looked like and what it felt. And I just, I don't know, as a fellow tomboy, I, it was like just truth on paper. Like I just loved it um, immensely. Just, yeah, um, yeah, it was just honest. And it just captured like a bunch of like little moments where I was like, oh my gosh, that happened to me too. Like, Everybody thought I was a little boy when I was like six years old and, um, you know, and like wanting to, yeah, like kick going, kicking and screaming when you had to like wear a dress and like, you know, wearing blazers to school. I don't know. But it's just like a very, I know that it's probably like a very specific life experience that like obviously not everybody has, 
but um, it's just really funny. It's really eye-opening. It's really sweet. And uh, yeah, I loved it. And I, you know, you can read it pretty quickly, but it's it's really great. So Tomboy by Liz Prince. Much love. Liz Prince is, is a really good author name. So good, right? Right. It's just strong. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's strong. It's strong. Yeah. No, she's 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 really wonderful. A uh, very, very funny lady. Tremendous. Well, we thank yeah. you guys for being really wonderful for listening to us. And we'll see you next time live from Cincinnati. Possibly live, actually. We have to figure that out. There might be a chance of us doing an NCR live show. Oh, that's right. Which could be bees. Which could be crazy. So, well, guys, stay stay tuned to us on on Twitter if you want. We'll definitely be tweeting that out if that does wind up happening. It'd be cool. It could be ridiculous, but it would be amusing for us, I think, at least. So, so long as there are half price late night apps, I'm there. And one ninety nine margaritas or whatever, which don't taste at all at candy freeze. So no, they only look like it. Oh right, exactly. (laughs) So we'll see you guys in Mason. Bye. Ciao, ciao. Shut up, just shut up, shut up. Shut up, just shut up, shut up. Shut up.